Hello, Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into some of the greatest UConn basketball games of all time. So, uh, yeah, just, you know, wanted to uh, kind of record a quick intro first. Uh, so, two things. One, you know, why is this late? Well, it's pretty simple. It was the 4th of July. So, um, you know, uh, my usual schedule got mixed, messed up a little bit. So kind of had to record this this uh, Tuesday morning and uh, have this posted in a couple hours, hopefully. So have, uh, you guys all have it for Tuesday, as uh, as promised. Uh, Alexa Philippou from the Hartford Current is our guest today. Uh, she is, uh, you know, doing a great job covering the UConn women's basketball team. And uh, we're going to be talking about one of, I believe, the most underrated UConn uh, women's national championship team of the 11 title teams, uh, the 2008-2009 team, which is uh, better known as the the first of the uh, back-to-back perfect seasons from the 2009-2010 range. Uh, this team was ridiculous. Like, it's like actually insane how good this team was. You've got Maya Moore, you've got Tina Charles, you've got Renee Montgomery, all of whom, you know, were, you know, among, they're all Americans at UConn and you know, obviously have gone on to do really great things in the pros. You know, Tiffany Hayes uh, was a freshman, did really well. She's a, had a long and successful pro career. You know, Kalena Green won an WNBA title. So this team, this team was stacked. And uh, it was fun to kind of go back. Um, the game, of course, we focused on is the national championship game against Louisville, which wasn't eventually not a very close game, but it was a more competitive game than you remember. So uh, definitely kind of a fun one to look back on because obviously, you know, we haven't had a chance to cover the UConn women on the show yet. And I mean, to be honest, I've wanted to do more, but just the, the trouble with the UConn women is they're so good that they don't play very many great games, like in the sense that, you know, the type that we usually have, like they all, almost always kind of blow out their opponents. And this team, I mean, of all the teams at UConn who've just crushed people, I mean, this 2008-2009 team was just something else. I mean, they they just mowed everybody down. But um, more importantly, you know, th- this team's legacy has really aged quite well because these not only have all these players gone on to enjoy you know successful pro careers, and now now they're almost all kind of at the forefront of the you know movement for racial justice that we're seeing. You know, Maya Moore just got an innocent man released from prison. She's given up like two years of her career. That's that's like like next level right there. You know, Renee Montgomery and Tiffany Hayes both announced recently they're going to opt out of the uh, upcoming WNBA season to focus on activism. And, you know, wouldn't be surprised to see others follow them. So, you know, this team, like this 2008-2009 team, you know, they get lumped in with kind of that era as a whole. But they, they really stand out as something else. And I think it's probably only appropriate to focus on them. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, one one more thing probably wondering what's up with the intro uh, what happened to the old intro um and well, the answer is pretty straightforward i mean you know nothing nothing happened but you know as i'm sure you probably know you know it's you know, these there's a lot of legality things and basically just had a couple conversations with some other podcasting people and kind of decided you know i don't want to deal with the possibility that some lawyer could just be like you know, sending me an angry email. So basically just, uh, you know, try to try to keep things, uh, you know, straightforward. Cause obviously I don't make any money off this podcast. It's pretty much just something I've been doing for fun. So I want to keep it that way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love that intro so much and, uh, going to try to get it, you know, squared away, I guess in the future, but you know, for now we're going to stick with uh, this one. I might change it up, I guess. Just bear with me. Hopefully you guys listen to the show for the actual content. <laughs> so, you know, that is what it is. Um, anyway. Yeah. So, uh, we'll, we'll hop in with, uh, Alexa and um, yeah just I guess kind of do the usual outro here uh, you know you can follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O DMs are open and uh, you can email me at yesyukonpodcast at gmail.com 
Uh, five star reviews are great. Um, you know, really, you know, really blown away by last week's uh, listenership. You guys were awesome. I mean, last week was one of the most listened to episodes we've ever had. So, um, you know, hope you guys like this one. Going to try to come up with some more great stuff coming forward. And uh, yeah, let's uh, hop into the conversation with Alexa. Um, hope you guys enjoy it. All right, here we go. Uh, joining the show today is Alexa Philippou, the Yukon uh, women's basketball beat writer for the Hartford Current. Alexa, I, I, we literally just talked about this off the air. Did I just spell? Did I just pronounce your name correctly? Is that is that all good? Yeah, yeah, Philippou is right. Awesome, good stuff. Well, thanks so much for coming on. So yeah, so uh, you know, like I said, Alexa covers Yukon women's basketball for the Hartford Current, done, doing a really good job there. And uh, yeah, we're we're gonna talk about the you know, it's actually the first time we've covered the women on this podcast. And uh, you know, honestly, like it wasn't really like the. the you know, one was obviously wanted to talk about the women more, but one of the problems with the the program is they've been so dominant. They haven't actually had as many great games. They usually just have great teams and smoke everybody. But uh, in this case, we have kind of a, you know good um, uh, you know good modern context here because this uh, 2008-2009 team that we're going to talk about not only was it one of the greatest basketball teams ever put together for col- you know women's college basketball. But these girls have all gone on to do really incredible things in the WNBA, and now they've, you know, pretty much at the forefront of this, you know, really remarkable, uh, you know, movement for social justice. Um, so, you know, Alexa, I guess just to kind of uh, start us off, you, could you maybe just, uh, you know, start by summarizing sort of what these girls have been up to recently? Yeah, so pretty incredible things um, on that note. They have, let's see, if we start with Renee Montgomery, who was a senior on that 2008-2009 team, um, she has been among some of the players who have opted out of the 2020 WNBA season, and she was the first one to specifically opt out um, for social justice, like racial, like ra- fighting racial injustice, um, like specific reasons. Um, so she's been on the forefront of that, um, and she will continue to be over the next few months. Um, she also has had a really successful WNBA career uh, since she graduated from UConn, has won two WNBA titles. Um, and you know she was like that senior of the group, and then you kind of go down the list of who else was on that team at the time. And it's just, it's remarkable. You had Tina Charles, uh, Tina, who, again, she won two national titles at UConn as well, this, you know, that 2008-2009 year and um, the year afterward. Um, and it's been one of the best players that UConn has sent to the WNBA, you know, basically this last decade. Um, she's still fighting for that WNBA title, but you know, she was kind of on this like super team now that she got traded to Washington um, and will be paired up with Elena Deladon and Emma Meeseman. They're the reigning WNBA um, champions, but she's had, you know, even without a title, her career has just been super successful like she's won all like the major individual awards all-star all these times and um she's just been one of the most dominant players in the game um maya moore too you could say so many of the similar things about that about maya she obviously was a sophomore that 2008 2009 year went on to win like another national title the year after um maya has had such a just remarkable remarkable career we've been talking more about her recently because she was she has been probably you can you, there's a really strong case you can make that she's one of the greatest to ever play period um she's won four WNBA titles 
Um, she's been with the Lynx for her whole career since being drafted in 2011. Um, she's a, you know, finals MVP 2013, um, the 2014 league MVP, six-time All-Star. got my notes up, so now I'm just... I don't know these off the top of my head. No, it's all good. Um, well, I think the most but, important thing for Maya is that she hasn't been playing for over a year because she is, right. you know, you know, really put her money where her mouth is. And, you know, she basically just got this guy who was, you know, wrongfully convicted, freed from jail. Uh, Jonathan Irons, I, I don't have to admit, I don't really know the full details of his story, but she's been fighting for, you know, basically two years to, you know, free an innocent man. And, you know, on one hand, it's like, it's, absolutely incredible that she frankly you know basically pulled it off i mean you know just just recently the guy walked free and um you know but it's also really infuriating because it's like you have the best woman's basketball player maybe ever and she's you know the one who has to go out and you know do this great thing when you know he should should never have been put in jail in the first place so like it's you know really good for her. I mean, she's always been, you know, pretty outspoken, you know, about her, you know, personal beliefs, you know, a pretty outspoken Christian. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's really cool to see, I guess, just, um, you know, you hear, you hear people say, you know, the great things, but, you know, she really sacrificed a lot. And, you know, just now, I guess, here we are, you know, you know, all these years later, and, you know, all of her college teammates are basically gonna, you know, try to do the same, basically, you know, to some extent or another. Yeah. I mean, what's just incredible with her is that, I mean, there's been plenty of athletes that have gotten really involved with activism, but to literally step away from your career at your peak, and considering she was arguably, again, like the winningest, one of the winningest players in the sports history, and she decided to step away, and um, there's something else that was tugging at her heart. I think that is, I think that's unparalleled, Um, honestly. I think I saw... um, you know, some tweets basically comparing her, and, and, you know, you can kind of dis- debate this, but with comparing her with Muhammad Ali, I mean, she, the, what she had to sacrifice, and again, you, you kind of mentioned that it was infuriating that someone like her would have to step away to get this man freed. Um, it shouldn't have to be like that. Um, it shouldn't take a, a star with fame and financial resources to provide that backing to, um, you know, o- help overturn a wrongful conviction, but... That's what ended up happening, and I do think too, like even if the system hadn't worked out, like if it hadn't worked out in Jonathan Iron's favor, and if for whatever reason he still had to um, stay in, in jail, that that shouldn't take away from how meaningful that sacrifice was for Maya, and 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 the, not just the sacrifice, but her willingness to be part of the fight, and it's incredible even just talking with her um, or hearing what she's had to say. She's not necessarily in a rush to get back to basketball because I think she it seems like she's felt you know this purpose to do something off the court um in these areas and we'll see what that looks like now that Jonathan Irons has been freed um I would imagine it would also be involved you know relating to other criminal justice reform efforts and um I know she's really um you know her religion's really important to her so maybe with like the ministry could maybe something like that but um you know if that's what direction her life takes her then she'll still walk away as one of the best basketball players to ever play uh but what she does off the court carries so much more significance and meaning that most people just don't see necessarily from professional athletes so it's it's very inspiring to not just you know other people to know you know athletes are more than just athletes but like you said like her teammates too have obviously been inspired by her and have 
taken suit now. Yeah, she really is a pioneer in that respect. And I mean, let's face it, you know, she's a four-time WNBA champion. She's won everything and everywhere she's ever gone. So you're like, yeah, she, she really doesn't need to prove anything else. But it is, you know, I don't know, like at the end of the day, you know, we'll, we'll look back decades from now and we're going to, I guess, you know, do the thing sports fans do and we're going to rank, you know, oh, who's the best? And, you know, maybe... Maya could have had, I don't know, six or seven WNBA titles and, you know, more more MVP awards and all those, you know, stupid things to bolster that kind of pointless debate. But yeah, I mean, anybody who's seen her play can tell you. I mean, she's she's like one of the greatest for sure. Um, shout out to Tiffany Hayes, by the way. We should mention, you know, she was a freshman on this 2008-2009 um, team. She is also still in the WNBA. She's been, you know, actually uh, seems like she's, you know, enjoying some of the best years of her career quite recently. And um yeah, no, she's also decided to step away. She's uh, announced recently that she's going to set the season out to focus on activism. So that's three of the five starters, you know, pretty much kind of leading the way. And, you know, we can't rule out the possibility that more could join them, too. So, um, yeah, I figured, you know, this is, you know, UConn women's basketball has had some awesome teams. Uh, you know, obviously 11 national titles, six undefeated seasons. This team, I don't think you'd say is like the one you'd kind of hold up as, you know, the greatest UConn team in history. But maybe they should be, you know, taken seriously in the conversation more because this team was a wagon. Like, they killed people. <laughs> this team was, un like, I was just looking back at the stats and what they did to teams this season was honestly pretty shocking. Um, you know, they went 39-0. and uh, they didn't lose. They didn't win a single game by fewer than ten points. So they they had two wins by ten points, and then every other win was, you know, twenty, thirty, forty. And they just they just embarrassed all the best teams too. So I mean, you look at what they did in college versus what they've done in the pros versus what they're doing now. I mean, what a legacy. I mean, this this team is really something else. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because. For whatever, I mean, I've only been around for a year covering the team, but for whatever reason, I, I almost get the sense that, like, UConn fans, like, don't talk enough about Maya and Tina, specifically. Because there's so much attention on Sue and Dee, and, like, rightfully so. I mean, obviously, especially if you, you know, most people, I feel like, say, oh, that, like, 2002 team was, like... You know, Gina might even say that, too. I don't remember exactly what he usually says when he's asked, like, oh, who was your best team? I think he probably tries to deflect... Um, but yeah, like there's so much attention on, on that era, but like this, like, well, the 2008-2009 season, but then also like 2009-2010, they were, like you said, they just demolished everyone. It wasn't even that competitive. Their average margin of victories were like, was like 30 points, like each season, I think. And I, it was the only time that they, they've had six undefeated seasons, but this is the only time they had two in a row. And I just think... Yeah, and like you said, you look at what these players have done in the pros, and even someone like Tiffany Hayes, who she wasn't like a Maya or a Tina or a Renee at UConn, but she's had a very successful pro career. Um, she's like Atlanta's one of I think she's their her like their second all time leading scorer in franchise history. I mean, she's been there the whole um, length of her pro career, but she's like very you know she's a very successful pro despite being I guess like a second round draft pick. Um, so, yeah. yeah, they're just, it, it, it's, it was shocking, like, going through, I was reading, like, old clips from The Current, and just reading about how dominant they were, not just, like, in the Big East and, like, the regular season, but when it actually came to the tournament time and just steamrolling, um, you know, basically the competition, and, and until that, I guess that some of those Stanford matchups, 
Tina's senior year and my junior year, 20, like 2009, 2010, like nothing was really close at all. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think probably the thing that kind of gets held against the Maya Moore era teams is that they only won those two titles. But only like, won two titles. Yeah, uh, but like that, you know? <laughs> that four year stretch was crazy. Like, you know, Maya's freshman year, they lose in the, they pretty much, you know, they don't quite run the table, but they, you know, pretty much dominated everybody. And then they just get upset by Stanford in the semifinals. And then kind of the same thing happened in uh, her senior year too. kind of, you know, that's, you know, the only reason we didn't have a third dual championship year is kind of just because of that. Um, so I guess it's probably worth kind of taking us back all the way to the beginning. So uh, I know that you didn't cover this team and you didn't come onto the scene until kind of recently, but this, um, you know, I, I think you, as you know, as you well know, this, this era was really one of the high points in UConn women's basketball history. Um, this season we're going to talk about was also my freshman year in college. So this was my introduction to the oh, UConn nice. basketball experience. So in 2008, 2009, the men's team was awesome. You know, they, they make the final four. They killed everybody. It's probably the most like wire to wire dominant season I've seen as a UConn fan. Cause you know, they're, you know, the men's uh, 2011 and 2014 title seasons, they were great, but they had ups and downs. You know, those, those teams weren't like, you weren't just going to describe them as some kind of a, you know, dominant force. Uh, this woman's team, though, I mean, my God, like, you know, it's it's funny to think like they were in the middle of a drought. So they hadn't won a national title since uh, the last of Diana Tarazi's uh, three-peat in 2004. So 2005, they lose in the Sweet 16. In 2006 and seven, they make the Elite Eight. So 2008 was their breakthrough get back to the final four they've been back every year since which is also pretty wild um but like by UConn basketball standards they were in you know I guess what qualifies as a rut and then yeah then you have this team and it's just just a joke you know you know you have three all-americans between Renee Maya and Tina you know you like we said before they're just shredding everybody they let me just give you their 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 best opponents so you have you know number 24 Notre Dame gave them their best game uh, and it probably shouldn't be a surprise because Notre Dame was always the only team that could really compete. That was a 76-66. They play Rutgers, who wasn't ranked, but Rutgers was always really good. That was 69-59. But then like their other games, they played on the road at number two, North Carolina, and they beat them by 30. They play number four, Oklahoma, who made the final four, and they beat them by 28. They played nineteen number 19 ranked Pitt, and they beat them by 53. Like... <laughs> What's up? Like, what in what universe do you ever see a top twenty-five team lose by fifty-three points? That is just a joke. Yeah. Well, one of the stats that really stuck out to me when I was going back and like doing research is so their average margin of victory that season ended up being I think thirty and a half points. But so all the games were decided by double figures, and that was the first time that an NCAA champion had done that. So I feel like what they were doing was, you know, that shows that it was kind of unprecedented, right? And then they go and do it again. Um, well, I, wait, actually the Stanford national, like the Stanford-UConn national title game the year after wasn't by double figures. But, you know, they basically they repeat that dominance and it really just goes to show what ended up coming with the Brianna Stewart years too because that kind of just being able to steamroll opponents and like basically, I don't want to say like walk right into the, the national title game, but you know, basically along those lines, um, that they just like continue to do that, like throughout the rest of the decade. Um, and the fact that too, like, I know we'll probably get to the national title game specifically, but the fact that they had really just like dominated Louisville 
in the two, you know, in the two games before that, um, you know, that national title game too. Um, it's just like there was no competition. I guess it helped too that um, Louisville was a three seed and that they ended up, um, you know, they took out. I guess it was like what OU and no, it was it OU and Maryland? I have it here. They beat oh, yeah, they beat they beat uh, OU, LSU, yeah. Maryland and um, OU. So they beat good teams to get there. Um, so I guess you could say who knows, like what would have happened, but like based off like what you just said up how they're just dominating teams in the regular season, including, you know, like who were supposed to like rest of like the path, like that was really good. Like probably there was no one stopping them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, UConn did play good opponents in the tournament, at least once they got to the final four, um, you know, first two rounds, obviously, are just a, you know, easy throwaway home victories at Gamble. You beat Vermont by a lot. You beat Florida by a lot. Then you go to the uh, Trenton Regional, you know, California, Arizona State. Those games are a little closer. They're like more like by 20-ish instead of by like 40-ish. Um, but yeah, you get to the Final Four and you got a, a, a date with Stanford in the national semifinal. And like, you know, Stanford is the only team that's proven they can compete with you. They're the last team that beat you. They beat you in the semifinal last year. And, uh, you know, UConn you know, w- wins that game 83 to 64. Um, so a pretty solid competitive game. And one probably at that point, they're like, OK, it's a wrap. Like we, we know what we have to do. Louisville, honestly, a good team like you know they're the three seed but you know UConn smoked them in the regular season they beat them in the Big East tournament but this team they have Angel McCautry who is like you know a top five player in the WNBA of the last decade or something you know in the conversation really really good she's been you know the Atlanta dream you know if Tiffany Hayes is like their second leading scorer she's certainly their their best um and yeah like you know that's a good player to build your team around and She's good enough that she could have, like, you know, possibly caused a lot of problems for UConn in the final. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you want to just dive into the final now or, I guess, uh, go big picture with Louisville first? Um, yeah, either one. I did want to add, though, that the <laughs> the score – I don't actually have the score in front of me, but UConn had beat Louisville in the Big East championship game, like, a month before that national championship by 39. Like, the fact that those two teams are again like meeting in the final and you know it ends up being another blowout too but like that it's just it's just I don't even know like it just blows my mind that it was like they were just that much better than everyone else just another kind of stat to demonstrate that yeah, yeah whatever direction you want to take it in we can go sure well you know I gotta say one of the, the refreshing things about this cha- championship game is it actually was a lot better than I remembered it being so obviously UConn wins by, you know, a lot. It winds up being, uh, fi- the final score wound up being 76 to 54. So they win by 22. That doesn't sound very competitive. You rewatch the game though. It's actually like the first half is good. Like, you know, Louisville is competitive for most of the way. And like the first 10 minutes, you could even argue they were playing better. Like, you know, McCautry, he, she opens the game with a three. She has 11 points within the first like nine minutes. Uh, UConn's offense is rough early on. Like they have a ton of turnovers. They're missing shots. They they can't hit anything from three, and um, you know it's like basically a one point game for a while. And I do remember watching this in my dorm. You know, and kind of you know me and my roommates were just like, like why is it this close? We like we crush these guys. What, what what's going on? So you know at least for that portion it was fun. Like you know you, whenever UConn women's basketball plays a close game, it's usually 
kind of like you call out, you text all your friends and like, hold up guys, it's a game. Like it's within 10 points. <laughs> so um, I'm just curious, do you, so I, I know you weren't covering the team. Would you remember this game? What was kind of, where were you at in life at this, uh, in 2009? <laughs> 2009. Um, I was not yet 14 years old. Um, had not yet really got into women's basketball. Um, Actually, I would say probably my women's basketball introduction was like two years later when, like, I have a memory of Notre Dame beating UConn on my senior year, but I basically, like, have very little, like, basketball consciousness, like, beforehand. Um, I was, like, fairly late to getting into the sport um, because it kind of coincided with me playing it in high school. Um, so I, I can't say exactly where I was, um, but it's interesting definitely going back and, um, kind of looking at what happened then and, um, even like the year afterward, cause I was, I went to Stanford. So like seeing how, you know, Stanford and UConn had this awesome rivalry and had that, that was like a, that was kind of like a complete opposite game probably, um, compared to this one. Man. But, wow. Um, that's, that's definitely some... interesting seeing the comparisons that, over the years. Wow, so you went to Stanford. Jeez, that that makes you like basically the enemy. I didn't even realize. <laughs> At least I didn't say I went to Notre Dame. Then there would probably be a real issue right now. <laughs> oh yeah, no, Notre Dame. I mean, Notre Stanford and Notre Dame were UConn's really. They were really the only worthy opponents that UConn played in this era. I mean, obviously there were others, but you know, it was. Um, geez, wow. <laughs> yeah, that game against Notre Dame my senior year was rough. That was really a shame that that happened. Yeah. But they replayed that recently during like, you know how they were replaying old games. Um, so I hadn't watched it in so long. But okay, I will. Sorry, I know this is like getting away from the 2009 title game. But I actually have been meaning to like say this and I want to say it publicly here that if that like, if People, like, try to use that game as a reason why, like, Maya's... Because I know, like, people always, like, say, who's a UConn GOAT? And Maya, oh, she only won two titles. Like, she didn't win her senior year like Diana did. I would say that that 2011 Notre Dame team was, like, way better than any team that Diana Trossi probably faced in 2004 um, when she won as a senior. Like, that Notre Dame team was stacked. Yeah, um, it's it's honestly so, incredible that that team didn't win the title too. Like what? Like oh yeah. How like how did they f that up? That was crazy. Yeah, Texas A and M. Just I I remember. Yeah, that was like my first real like women's basketball watching experience. So I remember um, like just following that and totally thinking like Notre Dame was going to win too, and they didn't. Um, same thing happened last like the next year because then Baylor beat them, but that, they had Brittany Griner at least. Um, so. But yeah, they were stacked, and I was I love I love whenever like ESPN plays these old games because then you like look back at them and you're like oh yeah like they had all these like that was you know Skylar Diggins and um, Deborah Peters on that team and like Natalie Novosel and Kayla McBride I think that was I might be like combining years a little bit there but they were definitely stacked. Yeah, no that that like four or five year stretch they were awesome. So yeah, so I guess just to kind of take it back to Louisville. So UConn. As it was often the case, if they were to start off slow and the game were to stay competitive, you knew that there would inevitably be a point where they just sort of take off. And I believe that kind of the moment was right around the, um, I guess we'll say the 12 to 10 minute mark or something. You know, UConn at that point was tied. They were tied 15-15 at the under 12. And by the under 8, UConn had taken a, you know, a 10, I think, yeah, uh, 
Yeah, I think I, I'm, the math may be a little off here, but it was a 10 to two run by the eight, uh, under eight timeout. So they're leading by six. Uh, so they're at that point, the timeout, they're winning 23 to 17. And that's kind of danger time for Louisville because you can't let UConn get any further ahead than that or else you're not going to be able to come back because uh, Louisville couldn't shoot the three very well. And instead, what happened was what always happens. Um, you know, UConn stretches the lead to eight, then the 10, then the 12. And then, you know, by halftime, you're up by 39 to 25. It's a 14 point lead. So, like, it's conceivable that Louisville could have come back, but you kind of knew it wasn't going to work out for them. You know, at one point during their run, you know, Renee, you know, Maya makes this crazy two. Renee hits a three. Tina is just grabbing every rebound. She's got 13 and 10 by, like, you know, the six minute mark in the first half. It's, you know, they, they, and meanwhile, Louisville does not hit a basket the last five minutes. So, you know, defensively, this game, you know, this game was really a masterclass for UConn. Um, you know, I guess, just, you know, and then the second half, I mean, it's kind of just more of the same, just like, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, Tiffany Hayes for three, Charles for two rebounds, a couple free throws here and there. And then eventually like Louisville scores a basket, but by then they're basically down 20 and it's kind of a wrap. So, you know, not a very dramatic game, but one of those games, if you rewatch, you're like, oh, wow, like, you know, Louisville could win this. And then eventually, like, Louisville's not going to win this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just was like UConn doing what they did. I mean, they they just dominated. They went through, you know, they used Tina and Tina's stat line was just like unbelievable that game. She went 11 for 13, um, had 15 defensive rebounds, 19 total. Um you know, she, I found this great quote, I was, again, going back through the clips, and Jeff Walls said that Tina was, like, in, had intimidated the team, and so once you have that um, fear, I think he actually said something, too, like, that the team wasn't used to the, kind of being in that sort of spotlight, and I guess, you know, neither was UConn, because they hadn't been in a national championship game um, in five years, but, um, you know, they just, once you have that fear, I guess, instilled, um, you know, another team, then, you're going to take advantage of that. And that's, and Gino too, like one of my favorite, there's like so many crazy UConn stats I've come across this last year, but I think like the craziest one is that Gino's 11 and 0 in national title games. Yeah. And UConn as a whole is 15 and 0, which is, you know, yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, that just really defies like all comprehension, but um, yeah. Um, Tina, like, going back to the game itself, like, Tina, obviously, she won, like, the, um, like, Final Four Most Outstanding Player, and I think rightfully so. Um, she was, like, obviously very huge in, um, in the title game. Um, but, you know, Maya and Renee also stepping up big. They each had 18 points. Um, I think, um, look, looking at the stat correctly, um, the three of them combined for 35 of UConn's 39 first half points. So that, again, like you were saying, that kind of built that lead. And then um, without Louisville able to get – they didn't have any production outside of Angel. Um, they only had one other player who had double digits, and that was like 10 points. So you can't really win – you know, you're not going to win a national title game unless it's like the really weird 2010 one, like only scoring 54 points. And they shot 30 30- – one percent from the field and UConn shot 50 percent like you're you know that's like how you're gonna win yeah I think actually the broadcast crew did a really good job of pointing that out like you know if you they're basically Louisville's plan had to be we need Angel to score 25 and we need like three or four other players to score 15 and you know yeah. they said they quoted Gino as saying if they do that then we're gonna lose 
And obviously that did not happen. Uh, Louisville got, you know, no production uh, from pretty much anybody else. And, uh, you know, UConn, as far as UConn went, like their starting lineup, uh, I think UConn only had one point off the bench. So, you know, the five, you know, the five main players, they really carried the load. And, uh, you know, we, we need to give a, cl- a quick shout out to Kalena Green. Like she, you know, played well in this game too. You know, she was a big part of both of those, uh, you know, the 78 straight wins and the, you know, the two championship teams, you know, she, and she played well in the WNBA too. She won a title with the Lynx. Uh, I don't believe she's still in the league. I could be wrong, no, but you know, she, not. she had a nice, a nice run too. So, you know, you basically, you know, more than any other team, I think, you know, UConn's ever had, this was just a straight up WNBA roster. Like you could have put this team in the WNBA that year and they would have probably been at least reasonably competitive. Like I can't think of too many college teams in, in, in any situation that you could even say that about. Cause you know, we always argue, Oh, what happens if you have like Kentucky play against the WN, you know, uh, if you have Kentucky play against an NBA team, it's like they'd get killed. I'm not so sure with this team. Like this team was nuts. Like how just how much talent was there and how good they were in the you know in the pros pretty much right away. Yeah, I mean, I mean those were all like it's not often you see a team whose lineup um, that's like literally all ends up going into the NBA or WNBA and has um, hugely successful careers. I mean, even if like Maya and Tina weren't the superstars they were, and it was you know they it was still just five WNBA players. Caroline um, Dottie was on that team too, but she was hurt, um, so she didn't. She was a freshman, I think, then, and she didn't play. But what also like blows my mind is that this team could have had Elena Deladon, but that was you know she obviously decided to transfer to Delaware. Oh my God, that's it right. Doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense, like how much more they would have they could have won if she ended up staying in like that alternate universe. Like, yeah. Again, that is so just, wild like, to think. Blows like, my mind. Elena Deladon, I always forget that she was supposed to be at UConn. And like, God, who would she have even, like, whose spot in the lineup would she have even taken? I guess probably Tiffany Hayes is by default, just, you know, because, like, God. Yeah, you're not going to take Maya and Tina off the court. No, no, I don't know. That's that, 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 got my goodness. Just what a, geez, what a roster. My, <laughs> but they didn't even need her. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they, Blew out all their opponents. They won two titles. Um, you know, Elena did her thing at Delaware. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess if Elena had been there, <laughs> the difference would have been they probably win an 11 and 12 going away, I guess. I don't know. That's maybe more of a long-term play. But yeah, it's hard to imagine the 2009 team could have been any more dominant because they literally were you know, statistically the most dominant team basically ever. And the entire roster played in the WNBA. So by almost any metric you can think of, I mean... Just, just an absolute wagon. Um, yeah, so I guess let's uh, for, let's kind of to wrap up this game. Uh, you know, we usually save this for the end of the podcast, but we'll kind of touch on it now for the game. You know, who's the top dog? You know, who won the game? Uh, I think we have some pretty a couple of can- candidates, but I'll let you kind of pick first. You know, who who was sort of the the best player of the game for UConn? Uh, I, mean, I think you have to say Tina Charles. Um, you know, have a twenty five and nineteen performance is. Um, like if she has less than that, you know, UConn still could have won again. Like we were talking about like Louisville having no other production outside of Angel kind of was a main thing that did, did them in. But, um, one of the things too, that again, like as I was going back through, um, just some of the context around this game was that, um, and you know, you might be a better source of this, so you can kind of maybe fill in some of my gaps for me, but there seemed to be this, um, from what I read, this kind of. 
pressure on Tina to step up big um, in a in the tournament and like a in the stage that actually matters. And like this was like kind of the you know the first time she had really done that, and it was kind of just like okay, like Tina's emerging into this star, and she obviously continued to do that as a senior. But um, I mean, I, I just think her performance, um, and again, like that's why I think she was rightfully named the um, the final four most outstanding player. Um, I would give her that award. Mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, you look at... Another, the other thing I would say is that um, I think Renee being able to go out um, with not only a good performance on her last game um, in college, but also, most importantly, with the national title, that was so important to the team at the time and to Gino. Like, he wanted to be able to give her that because she was such this great leader um, it's just great presence uh, on the team for her um, time there. So maybe just like the, um, you know, maybe her production wasn't as crucial as, as Tina's in some elements, like on the court, but what it meant to her was um, definitely like very valuable. And obviously that was like her, you know, her one title and then she left for the pros versus like Tina and Maya each got another one the next year. So I think that was also like important too at the time. Yeah, I think this was definitely Tina. It certainly had to have been one of Tina's best games at UConn. I mean, I can't imagine that there was any more important than this. I mean, like you said, 25 and 19, 11 for 13 from the field. And she basically just demoralized, you know, Louisville in the paint. Like every time they went up for a basket, she's altering the shot. She's grabbing the rebound. She, She just grabbed everything. Like, you know, she was just causing all kinds of chaos down there. Um, you know, Maya, 18 points, nine rebounds, really good. Renee, 18 points, although she was kind of sloppy, not the most efficient, but like still, you know, she was productive. Um, but, you know, they, you know, if Tina has just like an okay game instead of a great game, I think they still win. But then it's probably like an actual like, oh, my gosh, you know, down to the wire kind of game. But Tina sort of elevated the team's performance to the level where they're just like, nah, it's a wrap. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. So, I mean, you know, kind of, you know, the, the nice legacy of this team is that their journey, their, their journey is still not over, you know, even a decade later, you know, Renee gets drafted number four overall, Tina and Maya each go number one overall, their respective years, the next couple of years. And, you know, yeah, just like Maya, four-time WNBA champ. She's a one league MVP. Renee is a two-time WNBA champ. She's been a league all-star. Tina's just, you know, seven-time all-star, five-time first-team all-WNBA. You know, Tiffany's doing good. Kalina Green played, you know, played well, won a title. And, you know, now that brings us to today. Um, you know, you, you want to talk about the people who are sort of at the forefront of, you know, this, uh, you know, recent movement for racial justice. I mean, the f- who are the biggest names? It's all, it's three of UConn starters from this team. I mean, you know, what does that say? I guess, I don't know. So, um, I don't know, I guess, you know, this is probably more in your wheelhouse now, but w- what's kind of the latest you've heard as far as sort of what's going on and I guess kind of what their plan is going forward? Yeah. Um, so they're each so different too, um, which I think is like really interesting. Renee is, um, super just like, media appearances everywhere, um, super accessible. Um, she, so she had started off by raising money through her foundation so that she could buy water bottles to hand out to protesters in Atlanta. Um, but I think she's expanding those efforts now that she's, you know, sitting out the season and she wants to get involved with, um, kind of voting reform and fighting voter suppression, especially in Georgia. Um, so she's kind of been, doing this, I, I know, a media blitz more or less just kind of 
telling people, especially because, and it's, I think it's a good thing, too, for the league to um, get this, like, maybe coverage it wouldn't normally get, um, you know, about her um, stance and what she's doing, because people can see that, you know, this is what WNBA players are doing for activism, and I think that's just generally good for the game, so she's, um, she's kind of in the, in the midst of that right now, so it'll be really exciting to see what she does. Um, Maya, um, I, you know, as we kind of mentioned before, um, it kind of remains to be seen what exactly her immediate future will look like, now that Jonathan Irons is freed, but um, it's I, I would guess that she's still going to be very involved with criminal justice reform and advocacy, and you know she does different you know awarenesses, and she's using her platform as well. Tina is really interesting. She's the more quiet of the group. Um, she's just in general seems like very kind of private to herself. Doesn't crave the spotlight. Um, she does a ton of advocacy, um, kind of activism through both her own, like, foundation, um, just, you know, even from when the WNBA first started kind of protesting against racial injustice and police brutality in 2016, she was on kind of on the forefront of that, too. Um, so she's been very, like, it's been very mom what's going on with Tina. There's some talk that she might also opt out of the season, either maybe as, as like, a medical exemption or maybe, you know, for social justice, it's all kind of up in there. We don't know if she's in Florida um, at the time of the recording of this, um, so very kind of up in the air what's going on with her, um, and then, yeah, Tiffany, it seems like she's gonna get involved more with, like, the activism, um, kind of the activism route, although her initial statement when she was discussing about why she wanted to sit out the season wasn't 100%, like, explicit on what the reason was, but kind of, like, kind of follow-up I've seen after that does make it seem like, uh, at least this you know, the activism piece was, like, a big part of her decision, too. So um, we'll have to look out and see what all of that looks like down the road. It's still obviously super early, and I think there's a lot of work that they'll be able to do in the next, you know, in the next few months of what would have been their season um, or what will be their season, whether or not they decide, you know, if Tina decides to play or not. But also beyond, I don't think this is, um, you know, it's just the start for all of them. Um, or just the continuation, because a lot of them have been involved with this beforehand. So we'll have to see. Yeah, absolutely. So the, even those players who do end up playing this season, and obviously the we should probably mention the coronavirus is still very much a factor here. So some players who may opt right. out, it may be for personal health reasons too, which is absolutely right. you know a, a good call if that's what's right for them. Um, but the WNBA, you know, those who play, the, the league has, you know, been, you know, more vocal than most about sort of how they, they, they've almost, I guess, described it as being like, they, they want to like make racial justice, like an explicit theme of their season. So could you share with us, I guess, kind of what some of those like plans might be and sort of what the, what the league has in mind? Yeah. Um, so they actually just kind of flushed that out a little bit yesterday in an official announcement. Um, their kind of new platform is called the Justice Movement, and they created a kind of social justice council um, made up of, you know, a few different players at the league, and um, they're, again, they're, they want to be on the forefront of all the social reform um, and kind of talking about race and, and voting rights and even LGBTQ advocacy and, and gun control and basically anything in that realm. Um, so they, they're seems like they're exploring a lot. I think they're going to do a lot of kind of roundtables and um, podcasts and just do different stuff where they're using their platform to uh, educate their fan, fan base and, you know, kind of start these conversations. And they're also doing 
some stuff around you know, the Black Lives Letter specifically. Uh, I think they're going to be some pe- teams will have the option to wear. Um, I think it's Brianna Taylor's name on like the back of their. I'm going to say it's the back of their warm ups. Um, their warm ups t shirt, like Black Mike Ladder, they could use too. Um, and then they're going to also have, I think, Black Lives Matter on the court um, displayed during games. So I think we'll have to see how that kind of continues to develop over time. But um, you have that from the league perspective, but then you also have individual teams and, of course, the players themselves creating their own platform. So I also cover the Sun. The Sun have their own platform that they've come up with, which is called Change Can't Wait. And they're, um, they're you know, they have different kind of pillars to that and what they want that to look like. And, you know, players are also now more than ever, I think they're really just using their platforms, especially with social media, just to, um, you know, get out their message and educate people and, um, you know, help be part, again, be part of the conversation and try and use their platforms for a positive change. So a lot of things are going on at a lot of different levels. And um, I think it'll, you know, these players just care so passionately about it that I think it's, you know, it's going to be a huge part of this season. Um, it's not just going to be about basketball anymore. Um, it's going to be about all this, you know, stuff that's way more important off the court. Yeah, absolutely. And so as far as the basketball goes, from my understanding is that the season will be fairly condensed. I, I don't believe more than a month or two, right? Um, so what sort of, how, how is the season going to look? And I guess we'll say in from an encore perspective. Yeah, so it's going to be a 22-game regular season, which is 12 games shorter than a normal season would be. And they're going to maintain the playoff structure. So by the time everything is said and done, the season is supposed to start around July 24th. And, you know, the playoffs should go through October. So that, like, the October part won't change because that's typically when, you know, the finals would be done. But it's really just like squeezing in all the regular season games, you know, starting at the end of July. So it's just, I mean, so much of it's still up in the air because we're not, again, we're not even 100% sure if everyone's, you know, who's playing or who's not playing, who's opting out still, who um, will end up, you know, opting in. And just the fact that these teams have basically two weeks to get in shape through training camp specifically, and then they have a really short season where, Every game just matters that much more, and everything's just maximized. Um, any kind of, it, like, you know, again, with the Sun, not to kind of go back to one team specifically, they have a lot of new players. Um, basically, it'll, they'll have a completely different, not completely different, but they'll have a different starting lineup, um, just so many different players to incorporate that if they can't get their chemistry going right away, that could be really bad because then, you know, one bad week and you could, you know, really hurt your, you know, your playoff standings or, you know, the seedings or, or whatnot. So uh, I think every team has their own version of that. that they're going to have to figure out because every team pretty much is affected either by players opting out or, you know, at the very least just, you know, you know, are they going to be able to get in shape and um, are they going to be able to kind of adjust to kind of just the weird um, oddities of the season on time? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. So now, obviously, I would say that most of uh, this podcast listeners, I, I think if they're like me, it's usually kind of a thing where we like to root for the UConn players more so than a specific team. Obviously, I'm sure there's probably some, you know, Connecticut Sun fans too, but just, uh, you know, 
at least in my case, I've always just been like, all right, like, you know, where's Maya? Where's, you know, where's Stewie? Where is, you know, Kelly Ferris? You know, some of the more, you know, the lesser known players, you know, who's where, who's doing well. So obviously we, a lot of the you know well-known players are opting out, but there'll be some UConn players playing this season. So who, yeah. who should we watch out for this year? Like who's, play, who, which players are going to be in line for a big season and maybe which teams are the, the contenders for the title? Yeah, um, like this question. There are, um, there's been like a good amount of hype about the Chicago Sky because they don't have, um, their kind of main um, core hasn't really been that disturbed by everything. Like it's still like the main group. And in terms of just like the UConn connection, they have three UConn players now with um, Stephanie Dolson, Azrae Stevens, and Gabby Will. Um, I'm excited to see how they look. Um, Mariah Jefferson, she's going to be back playing, um, hopefully for her for first full season in really a while. Um, so I'm really excited to see how she does since she was kind of dealing with all these knee injuries and um, set up the entirety of last year and um, just has been, you know, dealing with so much for, her, you know, the bulk of her pretty young career. So how she looks in Dallas, she has a young team around her, kind of a lot of new pieces. So that would be interesting for her. Um and then I guess you could say, I mean, you have, like, it's really hard to choose. There's, like, a lot of good players. Like, Nafisa Collier was just, like, the rookie of the year for the, you know, for the for the league. And she's coming back as a Lynx team captain now. Um, she's paired up with Crystal Dangerfield. And the New York Liberty have three players from UConn on their team. Um, obviously, you know, you always want to watch Diana Taurasi. And Bria Hartley is going to be on the team with, um, with her and Phoenix. But then I would also say, you know, the Storm, like, seeing how Stewie and Sue do on their first year back after they both lost last season uh, because of injuries. And now Morgan Tuck's on the team. That'll be interesting, too. Um, obviously, fan favorites. And um, another that's another team that people are already saying are, like, early title favorites because it's basically the majority of the same team from when they won in 2018. Um, and if Tina plays in, in D.C., I mean... I, I really just want to see how, like, Tina and Elena Deladon and Emma Miesman, like, all, you know, all these really good Washington players fit together. But that might not be till next year. Yeah. So um, that's fine if it is. I think every player should make whatever decision's right for her. But um, it's, you know, again, this is just kind of another season where even with players like Renee and Tiffany and, and Maya sitting out, you're going to have a lot, of, um, a lot of great players to watch, both, you know, former UConn players and just elsewhere, hopefully, um, as long as everything goes smoothly, safe and healthy or safety and health wise, then, um, you know, will be a good product on the court too. Nice. Well, that's good. So actually, if you don't mind, maybe could you give me a quick update on exactly what, uh, Stewie's latest, uh, you know, health, health wise is, cause I know that she, she's missed a lot of time and, uh, I have to admit, I'm not totally up to speed on sort of where she is in her recovery. So is she good to go? Is she still kind of on the way? What's, what's her latest deal? She's good to go. Um, last time I was looking at it, like, extensively, I think at the beginning of all this, like, quarantine stuff, she was still going to rehab and, um, you know, making sure she was in the best kind of possible situation, that she wasn't having any kind of, like, I guess, like, muscle atrophy or anything like that, um, just making sure she was keeping in shape. So, um, by all accounts, I think she's, you know... She's rolling. She they took a she and Sue and some of the other 
Seattle players ended up chartering somehow to IMG, so um, she's there, and uh, I think it'll, it will be interesting. I don't know specifically for Stewie what they will do, but I have heard, um, you know, this is one of the things the Sun Coach did say, like, managing minutes might be something that teams have to do at the beginning of the season as players get in more shape. Um, you know, Stewie did play a little bit, um, especially through, like, Team USA, Um you know, since coming back from her injury. So I, I'm not, you know, 100% sure where she is shape-wise, but again, that's kind of an issue that everyone's having to deal with. So, um, you know, hopefully her recovery um, and her return to WNBA play continues to go smoothly on her end. Well, that's good to hear. Obviously, she's, uh, you know, definitely one of the ones that you want to see uh, out there healthy because, you know, when she's on, my God. Um, so kind of one, one last kind of question along these lines, you mentioned Sue Bird a couple of times. I think we need to emphasize she played at UConn in 2002. <laughs> She's been playing professional basketball for 18 years. Like that is pretty incredible. And like, you know, like, so LeBron James has been in the NBA for 17 years now. He was drafted in 2003, but he was drafted out of high school. Sue Bird was like 22, I think, when she came into the league or pretty close to it. And from, you know, admittedly, I don't really know, know sort of what she's been up to lately, but she still strikes me as probably one of the most relevant players in the league in terms of, you know, how often she comes up in, you know, national conversations. So what's what's the latest on Sue Bird? Like, where is she at in her career and kind of how is how's she doing right now? And just a quick kind of side note, I would say not to kind of make it a, you know, LeBron versus Sue or men versus women thing, but Sue has also played overseas like almost every year of her career. So she doesn't really have an off season, which is the reality for these WNBA players. Like they basically just have to play year round to, to make money. That's what she had to do going over to Russia um, for so long. Um, so I think what she's doing, at, she's about to turn 40, I think in October, like the fact that she's still playing after all that, um, you know, the last basically 20 years is, is just absolutely incredible. But the sense I get from, I mean, her game, I mean, okay, well, let me back up. 2018, um, especially, like, in that semifinal series where she was going off against, um, you know, Diana Taurasi and there's, like, the Storm versus the Mercury. That was, like, great basketball, and she had some, like, amazing heroics, and she played through, like, a broken nose with, like, a mask on, and that was, like, absolutely iconic um, not to, you know, take away from anything she did then, but, you know, she obviously, she missed last year with, um, with her injury, and, uh, I guess, like, the sense I've gotten just from seeing what she's said publicly is, like, she knows she's not, you know, she's on the tail end of her career, and, um, I think she's really realistic that she wants to listen to her body and, um, kind of go by that, and so she, you know, one of the big goals for her, it seemed like, was to A, um, if she can still play in the Olympics, like she'd love to, but she, you know, she's already played in four. So if it doesn't work out, then it's, you know, she has that to fall back on. So it'll be interesting to see now that the Olympics are as of now delayed till 2021, if she's is still able to make the team. Um, but also it seems like she wants to have one last season, um, of her pro career or of her basketball career playing at what was formerly known as Kiarina. And now it's like the climate pledge arena or I forgot what they named it like whatever it was like something with Amazon and climate um oh, climate pledge like, arena I think I, I think that's what they called it yeah that sounds right um but yeah so she wants to play there because that's where she 
you know, she's been with the storm this whole time. And um, since that's been renovated, she hasn't played there, I guess, since 20, wait, it must have been 2018. Um, so I guess in theory, that means they'll have her this year. She wants to shoot for, you know, 2021 too to play then, because I think that's when they would return to, um, to that arena. But again, I think she's very realistic in that if her body doesn't hold up, then she knows it's time. Um, but it seems like, also, too, she's just one of those, like, public, you know, faces of the league. I think so many people, like, if they don't follow women's basketball, they still know who Sue Bird is, and they still probably, like, would listen to Sue Bird if you're maybe not a day-to-day -day fan. So, in that sense, I think she's still super prominent, even if her game isn't, you know, at its peak. But she's just one of those players that um, she's just – I think she's on the forefront of activism, too, that helps um, – you know, um, I personally really enjoyed her Instagram um, show with Megan Rapino over quarantine. That helped me get through a lot of uh, Saturday nights. So, um, yeah, so she's still kind of going strong, and I think she's leaving a great legacy on and off the court for whenever she does decide to kind of step away. No, absolutely. She's she's something else. Yeah, that's, that show is really funny, and I, I really enjoyed her Players' Tribune piece about uh, how much President Trump hates her girlfriend. So, you know, some solid A plus trolling there. I love it. Um, yeah, no, you know, it's funny you mentioned the overseas thing and just I actually would, it would this would probably be a project that would take a, quite a bit of effort. But like, I would be curious to see exactly how many career games and minutes she's played over the course of her pro career, you know, adding up the WNBA with the overseas stuff. I would have to imagine she's got to be pretty close to the top of the list of the, you know, the longest tenured professional, you know, women's player ever. Like, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know, like, you know, because obviously, like, in, you know, in the NBA, it's a little hard to compare because they only play in one league, but they also play longer seasons. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even know how, how that comparison would work out. But at least within the women's game, you know, Sue, I, it's, I can't imagine there's been very many others who have played more, you know, minutes and more games than her because, I mean, geez, she's just been out there nonstop for 20 years. Like, that just doesn't happen in any in any sport, really. You know, 18 years is a long, long time to play a professional sport. Yeah, and she... So the WNBA was first started in, like, what, 97? And so the fact that she has existed... Or not existed. She's played in all but, I guess, what, five or six seasons of the WNBA's existence. Like, I th it would be hard to find anyone else who is... You know, especially if you add up again, like her overseas experiences, her Olympic appearances. I don't know who else would kind of top that. That would be a very interesting project, though. That's a good um, point. I actually hadn't considered that because, like, the guys you can think of who maybe could have been like that, like you know, your Cheryl Millers or whatever, they just simply the opportunity just simply didn't exist. So, yeah, yeah. I guess. Uh, well, well, I'm just gonna give it to Sue, and if if I'm wrong, you guys can come at me later <laughs> or something. <laughs> Well, um, someone will have to look at that at some point when she's uh once she actually does call it quits for good because that that is a that would be a mind you know kind of mind boggling stat I think either way regardless of what it ends up being yeah no absolutely so uh, Alexa I guess while I have you anything else you wanna you, you wanna add just about you know kind of you know UConn's activism the 2009 team just kind of the state of you know you women's basketball in general yeah um the only thing I would add that I don't think we touched on is um, I would encourage anyone who's interested to check out um, Maria Marino, the SNY um, reporter. She actually 
tweeted a video last night, so this would be, I guess, Monday the 6th, you'd have to look, July 6th, um, she tweeted a, a video where she had asked Maya how her Yukon experience informed basically her activism, and I thought Maya gave a really, really interesting answer about just, like, how being, especially around that coaching staff, kind of showed her to, you know, the team, you know, when you're on that team, when you're on a Yukon team, you know, you have to hold each other accountable, but you also have to have, I think she was just basically describing, like, you have to be leaders and have an awareness with how to um, interact with and bring up other people. And, you know, that way you can all rise to, like, your best level possible. Um, so I think, you know, people could also, you know, if they want to check that out, little shout out to Maria um, for asking that question, too. But I do think it's interesting and, um, you know, we talked about so many people on that 2009 team that ended up going into activism and prioritizing that this year, but I, it's not just limited to that, to that team um, in terms of UConn players who have done that. Um, so it's really interesting to see how much, and you know, I, I would have to talk with more players to see how much of that maybe speaks to how UConn prepared them for something like that or informed their um, decision to get more involved with activism and their confidence in that, or if it was maybe it's just like the type of people that junior recruits end up being these leaders in that space. But um, I think it's interesting too, after we saw, and I, I've talked with current players, especially when it was funny now that I'm, you know, thinking about this, the USA UConn exhibition game in January um, also had a reunion for, I think it was the 2009 and 2010 teams. I could be wrong if it was just one of them. But, you know, it was really cool hearing players like Kristen Williams, um, who's a rising junior, and um, Batuli Kamara, who uh, just graduated, who was a redshirt senior. Um, they were some of the players who really looked up to people like Maya Moore and, um, you know, the older Huskies who have been able to just make such great strides in, in different forms of activism. And um, we've seen that, too, especially with how UConn has responded to this current moment of um, fighting against racial injustice. Um, so I just think it's interesting how that, you know, kind of transcends generations and how, you know, the current players were inspired by the former players and, um, you know, how they're, how the UConn players just ended up being leaders on and off the court in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, just, just a lot there to unpack. And I think there's a lot to think about in terms of how a lot of what we talked about but those like 2009 players is still kind of present on some of the team or some of the players on the current team today. Oh, absolutely. Shout out to you, Cod Women's Basketball. You guys are the best. <laughs> so <laughs> Alexa, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Uh, I guess while I have you, anything you'd like to plug or, you know, how, how can people, uh, you know, read you and you know find you on social media? Sure. Um, well, subscribe to the Hartford Current if you want to keep up with all the latest UConn news. Um, I, or Connecticut Sun News, because that's kind of what my what I'm doing mostly over the summer. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, at Alexa Philippou, one L, two Ps. Um, kind of hard to spell, but, you know, find me there. I'll be, you know, keeping people up to date as much as possible on what's going on with UConn and, and the WNBA over the next, you know, however long. So that is where you can find me. Beautiful. All right. Well, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back next week and, uh, you know, we'll catch you guys all later.